For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by the revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason... I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, Jenny. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word um, and thank you for this reminder this day of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. So we ask that it may, might be a time in which we are strengthened and refreshed to be able to live for his honour and glory. Amen. Uh, well, can I ask you please to make sure you take out the leaflet? Uh, you'll see inside there's a pretty detailed outline of what we're going to cover. You'll need that open there in front of you. Um, and also make sure you can see one of these little memory verse cards, hopefully on the seats around you. Uh, we'll come back to that a bit later as well. Well, uh, it's been really wonderful to uh, be working through Ephesians with you and to do so, in my view, delightfully slowly uh, so we don't actually miss very much. Four weeks so far, just to get through the first two chapters, I kind of think it's like lingering over a gourmet meal, uh, piece by piece. Uh, this week we're going to go a bit faster, we're going to try and get through all of chapter three in one hit. Uh, so we'll get into it. We'll spend some of the time in verses 1 through 13 fairly quickly and then slow down on verses 14 through 21. And you'll see there on your handout three points. Paul's situation, firstly, 
On the right-hand side, point two, praying with Paul, and then finally, to God be the glory. Uh, So point one, Paul's situation. If you look at your handout, you'll see on the left-hand side, there's a timeline showing when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, uh, to the Christians in Ephesus. It was around the year AD 60. And uh, so far in this series, we've been seeing a little of their circumstances, what it was like for them in Ephesus. This is the first time, actually, today that we're going to hear a bit about Paul's situation. And uh, here's the big reveal. It's actually not much of a reveal at all. When he wrote to the Ephesians, Paul was in prison, uh, most likely in Rome. Uh, Look at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Uh, So Paul's probably in, in a Roman prison as he writes to the Ephesians. Before we see how that shapes our understanding of the letter, Paul, it feels like, veers off on what looks like a tangent Because in verses 2 through 6, he talks all about the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Pick it up with me in verse 2, Ephesians chapter 3. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Now, it's really important to know that when Paul speaks of mystery, he doesn't mean something that's mysterious or unsolved, uh, kind of like a whodunit that you have to try and decipher. He's just talking about something that previously was hidden, but now has been revealed. Uh, And therefore, the question becomes, well, what is that mystery that he's describing? Well, verse 6, Ephesians chapter 3, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Uh, This mystery, it seems, that's been revealed, it's basically just a recap of everything we saw last week in chapter 2. So actually, it's not a tangent at all. It's just a continuation. Last week we saw Paul say, because we have peace with God, we have no hostility with each other. We are fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, a holy temple in which God himself dwells. And so did you notice the recurring theme in verse 6? It was hard to miss. Heirs together, members together, sharers together. Paul is saying that what God has made known is the fact that what he has done for each of us, he actually does for all of us. And he does it for all of us together. And so, having reminded the Ephesians of what God is doing on a global scale, in verses 7 through 13, Paul then comes back to reflect on his own situation in prison and what that means for the Ephesians. So, pick it up with me in verse 7. Verses 7 through 9. Paul, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am the least of all the of, sorry, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. So the backstory is that after Paul was converted from Judaism, um, he is commissioned by Jesus to be Christ's apostle to the Gentiles. 
Although the thing is, he can't help himself. He ends up preaching the gospel to everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, and that's actually what ends up putting him in prison in Rome. Did you notice the lovely shift in language from verse 5 to verse 6? Verse 5, he's talked about the mystery of Christ that's now been made known. But verse 6, he talks about the boundless riches of Christ. From the mystery of Christ to the boundless riches of Christ. Verse 8. At this point, you might find yourself wondering, well, if the boundless riches of Christ are so wonderful, then why did God take so long? Why has he kept it hidden for so long? Why is he only revealing this mystery now? It's a good question. So... You ready for the answer? I don't know. Okay, let me just be upfront about that. I don't know. Really, I want to say that because it would be somewhat presumptuous, I think, of me to try and explain God's actions for him, try and explain God's timing. Now, it is an important question, and so, as I flagged at the start of the series, next week we're actually going to take a break from working through Ephesians in detail to come back to the question that was raised in the opening chapter, and that's about how does God predestine us? And we're actually going to come back and try and think about this aspect of timing next week. So join us then. Back to the question here. If the boundless riches of Christ are so great, why has God taken so long to finally reveal them? Well, look at the answer that Paul does give, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10. His intent was, God's intent was that now, through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Read it again. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay. What Paul is saying is that, firstly... There are rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I don't know if you ever stopped to think about that. But just as there is God and there is the devil, so there are apparently other spiritual beings in the heavenly realms. Secondly, what Paul is saying is that now is the time to let them know about the boundless riches of Christ. Now, I get that, back to the question then, Why has God chosen now to be the time to reveal it all? The answer there, it's not really much of an answer, is it? But actually what's most mind-blowing about what Paul says is the way that God shows his manifold wisdom. Because did you notice that there in verse 10? Verse 10, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Paul is saying that God's people are the illustration of God's wisdom. God's people are the illustration of God's wisdom. God's people, Paul says, are on display not just throughout this world, but before the whole cosmic universe. Now, I wonder how that makes you feel. Honoured? Embarrassed, somewhat terrified at the responsibility. God's people are meant to display God's wisdom to the whole watching universe. How does it make you feel? Well, my guess is actually a bit of all three, until we recall that actually the message of the cross, well, it is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
but to those who are being saved, it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God himself. Well, Paul wraps up this whole section by showing how his situation, his imprisonment, uh, what that means for the Ephesians and for us today. Pick it up in verse 12. Verse 12. In him and through faith in him, that is in Jesus and through faith in Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Here's what all this means for the Ephesians and for us today. Firstly, don't worry about drawing near to this all-powerful cosmic God. After all, we have peace with him. We saw that in chapter 2. But the second thing that Paul says, this is verse, 12, verse 13, don't be discouraged by Paul's sufferings for preaching the gospel. Don't be discouraged by Paul's sufferings for preaching the gospel. He is in prison. But even his incarceration will not stop God's plan to tell the whole universe of the boundless riches of Christ. Uh, even the way in which Paul got to prison in Rome testifies to God's sovereignty not being hindered in any way. I mean, I don't know if you know this, Paul is first arrested in Jerusalem, and the way he gets escorted to a prison in Rome under Roman guard and therefore Roman protection is actually quite fortuitous. Uh, travel in the, in the ancient world was actually quite unsafe, but Paul is escorted there very safely. And even once he gets to Rome, actually, his prison, well, at this point at least, is not as awful as it might seem. From house arrest, he is able to preach the gospel freely in Rome, in the very centre of the world. Look at Acts 28, verse 30, printed there at the bottom of your handout. Here's how Acts concludes. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So here's the application, I think, for us today. Nothing will stop God's plan to glorify Christ. Nothing will stop the gospel going to the ends of the earth, dare I say it, to the far reaches of the cosmos. Nothing will stop God's plan to display the boundless riches of Christ. So take heart and don't give up. Do you know, well, of course you know, we're in a pandemic, right? We've been in a pandemic for two and a half years. Earlier this year, we planted a church. You don't normally expect to hear of that kind of thing. And yet, actually, not just us, the Trinity Network planted three churches in a month this year, in a pandemic. It's not a comment on our brilliance or our expertise, simply that God's plan to proclaim Christ and to make his name known, it continues unabated, no matter what. Wasn't that video from Mike and Karen Rowe in South Africa, wasn't that the most encouraging thing that you could see? From their base in South Africa, through a pandemic, God is using them to reach an entire continent. And so I ask you, how do you react to personal setbacks in evangelism? Are you discouraged by classmates or workmates by family and friends who no longer listen to your invitations. In fact, you stopped asking. Do you know what keeps us going, I think, are those memory verses that I keep banging on about each week? 
the reminder from Ephesians that nothing will stop God's plan and quite frankly what we want is for others to have what we already experience ourselves. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. Getting to know our glorious Father better. The prestige and honour of being God's handiwork. The assurance of being members of his household with him dwelling amongst us. And can I say, if you're here today as someone who's not a Christian, perhaps at the invitation of a member of this church, this is the reason why they keep asking and keep inviting. Because they want you to have what we already have. Maybe you might talk with them about it afterwards. Well, that's the first part of Ephesians 3. Paul reflecting on his situation. Let's come to the second part, and this is his prayer uh, for the Ephesians. Pick it up with me in verse 14 and 15. Paul's prayer, verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Uh, we've just been hearing about God's universal plan in verses 1 through 13. So it feels kind of natural that Paul will now pray to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And in fact, Paul has two prayers. Let's look at each of them briefly. The first prayer is for power so that Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith. Power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Pick it up in verse 16. Verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Uh, this is actually Paul's second prayer for the Ephesians. Uh, you'll remember the first one. It was actually one of those memory verses back in chapter 1. The prayer to know God better. This is a prayer particularly for power. But of course the question is, what's the purpose? Power for what? Interestingly, it's not power for health or wealth or long life and happiness. It's not a power even for evangelistic or ministry success. It's a prayer for power, verse 17 so that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. So that Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith. And I think that's just the most fabulous image. It's not the image of Christ being your conscience, as if Christ might sit on your shoulder whispering in your ear. It's a prayer for Christ to dwell in our hearts by faith. Um, it's, it's the prayer that Christ might take up residence in our very being and in our core. That Jesus himself might mould us as God's handiwork, that we might be conformed to the image of God's own Son. It's a prayer that we might literally be Jesus-powered or Christ-shaped from the inside out and so be transformed in every part of who we are. And that's the prayer that Paul prays. Again, it raises a question. Uh, the question is, you might be thinking, I've been a Christian for a while. Isn't Christ already in our hearts by faith? Doesn't he already dwell in us by his spirit? Of course, the answer is yes, he does. But I think what Paul is reminding us, the image here is of inviting Christ to move in fully, moving completely so that he might have even more time and opportunity to renovate our hearts, 
to make us more like him. I mean, if you think about it, we were, chapter 2, dead in our transgressions and sins. So there's quite a lot of work still to be done. Uh, What's wonderful, did you notice verse 16? Verse 16, out of his glorious riches, out of God's glorious riches. It means that our glorious God has some pretty spectacular resources at his disposal to do that transformation. And so here's Paul's second reason for confidence despite suffering. Confidence despite suffering for the gospel, because remember, he is in prison. Paul is saying, I can handle anything if I know that Jesus is in me and Jesus is with me. So to his second and final prayer for the Ephesians, verse 17, second half, this is for power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Verse 17, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may, uh, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The second prayer, to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, this love that even surpasses knowledge. Now, once again, it raises the question, if you've been a Christian a while, you might be thinking, does that mean Paul is saying, I don't know love... I don't know Christ's love at all? Well, no. When Paul says that we might know Christ's love better, it's just reminding us that there is so much more to learn about his love. There are, to use the image here, so many different dimensions of Christ's love to discover. Uh, That image of wide and long and high and deep, it's an image of being very, very vast, even of... At the same time, it is also a very, very frustrating image for the mathematically-minded engineers here, trying to work out wide, long, high, deep, what's the fourth dimension? You know, I heard once, uh, actually I heard this often, PhD students say that when they finally submit their thesis, the one thing they know for certain is how little they know about the subject. They've barely scratched the surface. And that's the sense here. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, this love that even surpasses knowledge. And this then, I think, is the third reason why we take heart even when we suffer for the gospel. It's not just that God's cosmic plan continues unabated. We saw that in the first half of chapter 3. It's not just that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. We saw that in the second part. It's because whatever happens, we still know Christ's love. His love which even surpasses knowledge. Isn't it marvellous how Paul has moved us from not just thinking big picture and cosmic, he's got us focused up close and personal. How wonderfully reassuring to know that God uses his awesome universe-bending power for you and me because he loves us. Uh, No wonder then, I think, verses 17 through 19 are a favourite memory verse for Christians and, no surprise, it's the memory verse for this week. Now, can I say about memory verses, I know that's five in a row and some of you will be saying, my goodness, that's a lot. It's okay, I'm going to give you next week off, okay? So there's a chance for you to catch up on the first five. There's only nine in total. Now, one last comment. 
once again, what's the purpose of Paul's prayer? Why does he want us to better know the love of Christ? Well, look at how verse 19 concludes. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, if you're wondering what that means, because it sounds pretty good, um, here's the best explanation I've seen. You'll see they're printed on your handout a quote from a book that's this week's recommended reading. It's this one here by Don Carson called Praying with Paul. Um, this, by the way, this is a terrific book. Um, it's a book that actually I read when I was a university student with a good friend. What he, what, what he does is he just goes through each of the Apostle Paul's prayers, chapter by chapter, and just comments on them and shows how they're meant to shape the way in which we pray. Um, it, I think, was one of the most helpful things in helping me to grow as a young believer and to set me off on that wonderful journey of knowing God and knowing Christ's love better. So, Don Carson, praying with Paul. Look at what he says. Uh, to, be filled to, the all, to be filled to all the fullness of God is simply a Pauline way of saying to be all that God wants you to be or to be spiritually mature. This is why we want to know Christ's love better that we might be all that God wants us to be and be spiritually mature in Christ. Let me just take a few minutes to give a few brief reflections on the love of Christ, because that's clearly the key idea, the engine that powers this section. Um, you'll see a few things that I want to say there on your handout. Firstly, knowing the love that surpasses knowledge. Knowing the love that surpasses knowledge, because that's a slightly unusual phrase. And when Paul says to know something which surpasses knowledge, he's not saying that Christ's love is unknowable. Uh, this is not an appeal for a, a kind of spiritual mysticism. What Paul is saying is that Christ's love goes even beyond intellectual, intellectual knowledge. Uh, again, he's not saying, therefore, that we want to be lost in his love, Rather, our prayer is that we might better grasp and know his love more and more. And the reason for that is because the more you know Christ's love, the more you'll be moved by it. In fact, if you're not affected by Christ's love in any way, perhaps it's because you don't know it at all. Now, let me just qualify that and be really clear. The outward expression of one's response, that can vary from person to person. How you respond visibly to Christ's love, that can vary from person to person. So, for example, this is me when I'm excited. And this is me when I'm quite devastated. But that doesn't mean I'm not profoundly affected by Christ's love every single day and overflowing with thankfulness for every spiritual blessing that we have in him. At the same time, it's really important to notice that what Paul talks about here is knowing Christ's love. He doesn't say, feel Christ's love. He doesn't say, feel Christ's love. Now, I want to say something about this because we live in a time where actually feelings are king. Part of the reason why I think Paul says no Christ's love is because feelings are fickle. And more often than not, feelings are a product of our circumstances. Most of us feel more positive when things are going well. And most of us feel less positive when things are hard and a struggle. 
Now, don't mishear me. I'm not trying to deny the importance or the validity of feelings. I'm just saying that they're not always very reliable. And so what Paul says is not to search your feelings. He says to deepen in our knowledge and conviction about Christ's love and what that love is always like. Actually, no matter how we feel about it. What I'm saying is that when we doubt Christ's love for us, the right response is not to try and recreate an experience or relive a moment when we particularly felt his love. Rather, the right response when we doubt is to be reminded that from the cross, Jesus looks at us exactly the same way. He looks at us exactly the same way all the time with a love so amazing, so divine, that he would lay down his life for us. Which means that now we have no guilt in life, no fear in death. That is the power of Christ at work in each of us. So how then do you grow in your knowledge of Christ's love? Well, can I say that one of the best ways to appreciate the magnitude of someone's love is to reflect on how low the recipient has fallen and how far the lover will go to win them back? So remember again, Ephesians 2, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. That's pretty low. And in fact, by nature, we were deserving of God's wrath for sinning against him. That's also pretty low. And yet, because of his great love for us, God has made us alive in Christ. Uh, This is what Thomas Cramner, the great reformer of the English church, this is what he called Christ's love for the unlovely. It's what Samuel Crossman described in the great hymn, My song is love unknown, my saviour's love for me, love to the loveless shown, that I might lovely be. But who am I, that for my sake, my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Uh, Charles Wesley is even more blunt. He says that more than just loveless, we are the perpetrators. We are the ones who put Christ on the cross so that we could be saved. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? If Christ's love is shown to sinners, it means grace and mercy. And it's the assurance that if he's gone that far, he's not going to give up on us now. So, secondly there, past, present and future. Just as Christ's love is wide and long and high and deep, so his love is past, present and future. Christ doesn't just save us from our sins, he saves us for his service. He doesn't just save us from our despair, he also builds us up to be all that he wants us to be, to lead us to spiritual maturity. Because if he didn't, why bother saving us in the first place? 
Can you imagine how unloving it would be to rescue an at-risk child or a civilian casualty of war or a victim of famine and starvation only to leave them in squalor or fail to establish them somewhere better off? Ephesians 2 has reminded us we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for the very purpose of doing the good works he has prepared in advance for us to do. Which means, at one level, we didn't have to work out what they are. We just have to do them joyfully. And so the third comment, the love of Christ for us. The love of Christ for us. I don't know if you realise this, but every single reference in the New Testament, except for one, every single reference in the New Testament, except for one, when it talks about God's love, talks about God's love for us, not God's love for me. And actually, we saw that in this passage already. Verse 18. Verse 18. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. Together with all the Lord's holy people. It's reminded that this prayer to know God's love better, it's not just for you individually. It's not just for us privately or separately. It's actually for all of us together, collectively, as one. It's telling us that as we share of our individual knowledge of Christ's love, so we learn from each other and we model to each other and we reflect it to each other. As always, John Stott puts it best there on your handout. It takes the whole people of God to know the whole love of God. I realise this is hard. It means that we make ourselves vulnerable to each other. But don't give up. For Paul is saying we best mature into all the fullness of God in a loving environment, not a hostile one. And actually, I think that's where verse 17 began. Being rooted and established in love is the basis for all of us coming to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So finally then, point three, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. Let me read the last two verses. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Now these prayers ask a lot of God, don't they? To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. To have Christ dwell in our hearts by faith. To not be discouraged by suffering for the gospel. We're asking a lot of God, so it's a good thing that God's up to our request. He really can do, verse 20, immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And the only way in which we'll ever see that is if we ask him, which we'll do in just a moment. Notice Paul's conclusion, verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. It strikes me that by writing this here, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, he also has us in mind as well. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. It's a reminder once again that God's plan is universal. And so I found myself imagining Christ saying, even if you can't fully grasp how wide and long and high and deep is his love, 
What matters is that he went to the cross for us. Actually, he went to the cross for all believers throughout all generations. Even, he went to the cross for all things in heaven and on earth. And there's proof of his love. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you're able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. So we pray, help us to better know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Enthrone him in our hearts by faith and give us courage to stand firm for the gospel so that all glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations now and forever and ever might be to him. Amen.